Welcome to Rarity Brands, a podcast and business plan writing consultancy. My name is Alicia Bebino Grady, and I'm the founder and show host. In this space, we elevate, promote, and sustain the voices and vision of all Canadian women, all people of color, and their authentic allies. Rarity Brands, where exceptions become the rule. Healthcare companies also 
take a step back because hospitals have to divert all their resources towards COVID and consequentially other illnesses that arise because of it, because people's immune systems are so weak. Um, they weren't able to put any funding towards implementing new processes or new startups to, you know, make the hospital experience better in any way. So we had a couple of companies who were waiting for their pilot to start with hospitals in the surgical ward or in um, data management, and all of those pilots were basically revoked because the hospitals just didn't have the capacity to handle that on top of um, everyone basically working 24-7 for COVID relief. So that was very interesting to me. And your operations and your, your role continued. Um, and this is that you continue supporting these startups right through the, the beginning and the thick of the pandemic, notwithstanding the fact that now you're in a second, apparently even worse state, at least here in Canada. You, you guys aren't, you know, supporting the troops, I guess. Yes, exactly. And the idea there was to make sure that everyone could find some business to work on within their company. So, for example, if you're a healthcare company and you can no longer work in a surgical ward, then we try to help them pivot their business to be a COVID-friendly business that hospitals would want to start up at this point. Um, so it's basically thinking critically in people's business strategies and helping them focus down on what could happen in the next six months. Tremendous. You know, it's so funny. It's not funny. None of it is a laughing matter. But what became quickly uh, compelling for me in, as someone whose business is online and remote and always connecting with clients through, you know, Google Hangouts and Zoom. So it's almost kind of like, you know, similar to the way that we met, right? Um, at you were with that very tech yeah. and centric school that in and of itself prepares us for the world of the future. We just didn't know that the world of the future was going to include um, anticipating life as you know it falling apart and, and the tech anchor of you utterly becoming, you know, a sustainable component. So, so I guess my question or, or my comment to what you care that you're doing and what I saw coming together was very quickly it became clear that businesses that are going to survive through the future, um, not just in the short term, not just in 2020, but in the long sustainable term, has to be tech first, tech anchored, uh, tech savvy, in, in other words, Gone are the days where you can kind of keep or place digital on the back burner as a nice to have, as a we'll get around to it, as a, oh, it's too complicated for us to wrap our head around. What had been predicted for many, many years, particularly through the past decade, the 2010, was, hey, you know, digital first, and otherwise you're going to get left behind. So that sort of, that, ethos really came to full fruition pretty much right away, by the end of March, by April 1st. Um, and so that, to me, when I think back to anchoring to the themes of, of the conversations I'm having here um, within Rarity Brands is what is it that, you know, at least in the pre-COVID world, made a brand rare, um, definitely would have included folks that are digital first and tech first and and, you know, cloud first. Now that just seems to be at least the standards that folks know they ought to be uh, transitioning to. So that became very accurate right away, 
right, as to, like, what makes brands, the rare brands that actually survive this and thrive and actually are able to excel and exceed. You think of, you know, brands that actually just came out of the pandemic, such as the versus, um, you know, TV platform through at first Instagram and then through Apple Music, um, launched by Timbaland and Susie. So, so I guess my question to you or my, my proposal to you would be that not only do brands have to be digital first, but very quickly into the pandemic, we saw the disparities in society that we're, we're never really lurking below the service for, for most people, for those who, who lived it, but that just came to the forefront. That in and of itself, I feel, in the past particularly four months, has enhanced and added to what makes a brand rare that is going to survive for the future because no one's going to be able to forget what just happened. Forget 2020, forget the impact it had, forget the lessons that we not only just learned but are still learning because we're still in the thick of it. So what do you think about that? You know, the, the elements, at least the two that note to me the most are digital and transfer and and you know, thankfully anchored in the ethos of rarity brands, you just have to be authentically inclusive. You have to be driven by creativity and you have to be continually seeking out innovation are really the three pillars of rarity brands. And I signed those pillars like a year ago and it was really intriguing to see them kind of come to fruition as as what it means to be a brand that that is rare enough to survive a time like this, an unpredictable time. I'm wondering what your thoughts would be around what makes a brand rare. Yes, of course. So I love the vision and pillars of rarity brands because I think it really speaks to a future where being rare is continuously changing. So like you said before, if you were adding a component of technology to your business, that would help you stand out. But now we're seeing that that's more normalized. So you have to kind of innovate more to see um, what would help you really stand out and be rare. And part of this, too, what I've seen is companies that are nimble. It's not even about being tech-focused. It's just about being nimble. Like, you have something that can change with the time. Is what you're, the content that your company is producing, is it relevant? Um, are you being authentic to a brand? Do you even have a brand? A lot of tech companies don't have a brand because they yeah. see themselves as a tech company, yeah. and that's actually not cutting it nowadays, right? Part yeah. of a brand, people look into your company and they're also seeing who is representative in your company. And, I mean, I don't want to kick off the beginning of this meeting talking about diversity and inclusion, but essentially what I, what I think is it's no longer rare to be diverse and inclusive. Yeah. It's, it's like normalized. So what is it different that you're doing to make sure people who are of diverse backgrounds feel comfortable and are basically committing to your company and also working at a top level? Because a lot of times we'll see a company that has diversity as well, but you don't see people comfortable enough to work at their full potential because of the way the culture is in a company. Um, so these types of things, I'm actually very glad that they're no longer there and that people are having these conversations, but it does kind of show that in the future, what makes a company unique will be redefined by how people end up, you know, converting their social interactions into online. So, for example, I saw an uptake of companies that do delivery services, 
over the plastic ones. So, for example, grocery delivery services or meal delivery services from restaurants. And even restaurants are getting savvy now. They're being nimble. So instead of having you come into a restaurant where people don't feel comfortable sitting on the patio, they're sending you meal kits to prepare at home, which I think is innovative. And it keeps people engaged with their brand. So these types of pivots are necessary, and innovation doesn't necessarily have to include technology, but it has to be user-driven. So if your users are facing a obstacle in, like, interacting with your brand or with your um, representation of your company or with what your product is, or they're just too busy now because they have to deal with their families and homeschooling even, um, all of these things people are juggling, they don't have enough time to interact with every single company that's emailing them. I think it's time for people to kind of, like, take a look and figure out what the user needs and since their company towards that. And I, I think that would also become her. And you hit every nail on the head, and I think that's the piece that you added at the top of your your uh, response was, in this case, it's, it's, it's well understood in terms of what are the boxes that need to be picked, right? The social mm-hmm. interactions converted to online, being user-driven, tech and digital first, diversity, uh, inclusion, and I would add to that, coming from the, coming from the tech world that I was in, um, is it's not just enough to be diverse and inclusive, but people need to feel a sense of belonging. So the double click on that and admit yeah. that what I'm hearing you saying is that the, the almost, the almost, I wouldn't say silver bullet, but it's more to design, and the ideal silver bullet is nimbleness to how fast are people not just ticking those boxes, but starting to live and breathe those those, those non-negotiable elements of what it takes to survive and thrive to be a sustainable business through being a sustaining business, a business that sustains people, customers, employees internally. People feel like they're being respected and that they themselves as human beings are being sustained, right, in order to make the company's bottom line right. and ROI sustainable. So the nimbleness, the nimbleness piece as far as getting to that place and, and adapting it realistically is almost like, you know, what folks are kind of, you know, at least in, and now the key for 2020 caller in many companies is the case, trying to make real, trying to see how they can take those learnings because everything has just happened so, so fast. So I suppose, I suppose what I would love to do in having just, you know, summarized what you've shared um, and, and almost take a few steps back before we leave any further forward as to what office looks like, where have you seen it, seen it work really well with a lot of the, the startups that you're working with. You see tons. You see who tends to succeed. You see who, um, with, with certain elements, to get ahead faster, so we can talk about those rare elements. But I wanted to take a few steps back, um, as you said, and just, I don't know, jump in a, a time machine and a time travel machine and just learn from <laughs> you. <laughs> a little bit about your humble beginnings at Uwaterloo. Like, what, in that world, um, I met you in 2013, um, the Masters of Business, you were in the, um, the leadership team, I think it was the Computer Science Student uh, Association. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just would love to hear 
I mean, we met the way that we met, obviously, when I was working for a partnership for my startup, my tech, um, my fashion tech store called Salja, but, but I was kind of blessed to get the story behind the story. So I have my version of that story with us meeting. You have your version. But in addition to kind of sharing that, that story, I would love to hear kind of a double tip into where you were just overall at the time, um, in terms of what, what you want to teach and do, what elements um, at that time have informed what it is you're doing now and, and what's happening in the world right now. So I'm just, you know, an expansion to the story that you and I both know together would love to hear before we kind of leapfrog any further into, you know, saving the world. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, just to give people, I guess, who would listen to this after the fact and overview. So I love the day that I met you because I was thinking as one of the, I think, three females in computer science club and just sitting there as a first year student um, trying to understand different things and be a part of that leadership team and then you walked in wearing the most fantastic outfit that people, the like University of Waterloo doesn't have a rep for fashion. <laughs> so, I mean, you walked in looking amazing and you were very sure of yourself and you're like, I'm looking for someone to help me with this like, fashion related startup that I'm creating. And just from the get-go, your energy was what attracted me to you. Um, and it was just something that, like, I, I just saw you and I was like, okay, I need to work with this person because I know she's, like, doing amazing things. And after we started chatting and everything, we had a couple of points on the line. So at the time, I was studying computer science. I was in my first year. And um, going into, like, a co-op stream, I think, in the following semester. And for, for those of who don't know what co-op is, it's, it's an internship that you're kind of forced to get every four months in a computer science program. Mm-hmm. So over the course of my computer science degree, I just give those internships before I switch to the political science degree at University of Hawaii. So essentially what happened was, uh, for me, the computer science education helped me in my current role by being able to speak to startups in a technical sense. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, excuse me, the political science piece really came in, uh, for my own company, Posh Posh, and helping me understand the different societal reasons for things, that I was studying political theory and how to write properly and like how to make a case and an argument for everything. So both of those curricula kind of helped me form my both and how I think about things in the world. So I understand the importance of technology and the importance of how society interacts with technology, and that's kind of the intersection that I operate in now, which is basically helping companies come to market, which means helping them kind of predict how you will handle their products. Amazing, and I, that makes so much sense with the, the story behind Posh Posh coming to life, if you could maybe share a little bit more detail about that, because yeah, kind of for the listeners that are that are tuning in, um, Lisa had a super innovative and forward-thinking um, website with clothes of all kinds, dresses, you name it, that pockets, and it did, you know, pretty well, so I'd love you to kind of keep your learning a little bit, tell us a little bit about um, how that gained traction and momentum. Sure. So, in my final year of school, actually... Um, Alicia, you did the MBET program, and I was doing the 
not the master's version of the business entrepreneurship tech program, but the undergrad version. Yeah. So there's a couple of courses that you can do in your undergrad degree. So in that course, um, I had an idea for a company, and essentially it came out of the frustration that women's clothing is just like not functional. Mm-hmm. Um, inherently, it's very stylish, but it kind of like loses its functionality. So, for example, you go to a club and see women dress really well, but then they have to put their handbag in the coat check. Or you'll see university students carrying around really large backpacks because they can't even put their, you know, bus pass in their pocket. So there was a lot of these things that I kept seeing. So I basically, you know, what any self-respecting university student would do is tweet it out into the void and be like, wouldn't it be great if um, women's clothes had pockets, especially like pants or anything that, you know, you use on a daily basis that you can get more maturity of. Yeah. And normally my, my internet rants don't result in anything, mm-hmm. but this one was overshared and people started reaching out to me saying this should be a thing. I don't understand why this is not a thing. So yeah. I started getting a bit of um, validation right off the bat. So there you go. There's some market research right off the bat. And that basically caused me to uh, work with my co-founder, Jessica Stanton, she reached out to me saying that um, she's done university and she wanted to really start her own company. She doesn't want to work for anyone else. And she's happy to like, be the co-founder and work on this project with me. So we were working on Posh Posh for about three years until this January. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first year working on it was in university through the Velocity Drug Incubator University of Waterloo. And they were kind enough to accept us, which is a basically non-tech company. We were more of a, an e-commerce business. But um, and we basically launched in that program and started selling. What was amazing was that with our limited resources, like a, a phone and, you know, our computers, we were able to set up uh, a supply chain, film some videos of us wearing the different products, and put them on a website called Tumblr, which now people don't really use Tumblr, but, you know, like five years ago, Tumblr was pretty big. Um and it was also where a lot of women who who identify as like social justice warriors were, mm-hmm. and they would be very quick to like re um, reshare our content because they felt like it was addressing the need of needs of women uh, presently. So we created this entire video explaining that all the hundred ways you can use a pocket, and it was meant to be kind of a a satire as to like why like people don't have to use pockets. We just want to give women what they want. Um, and it, it was it was very, very, very viral at the time. And we were just, we got so many orders in the first month. We, or like, Shopify site, actually, I don't know if I should be sharing this, but we got hacked in our first month um, by like, Russian hackers. Oh, wow. <laughs> because uh, they basically took down our site and for a day because, like, of all the traffic we were receiving. And... You have to go through that process. It was just like a lot of growth very quickly, and Jessica and I had to be very quick to capture all that growth. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, we went from being nobody to having like 500 customers and shipping products all over the U.S. and Canada. Um, and it had some very great supporters in the beginning because we actually used University of Waterloo students as our models from the get-go. Wow. Um, so part of our our mission was to be diverse not only 
in our clothing sizes from small to 3XL, but also in who we represent our brand with. And we had folks who identify the LGBTQ community, who identify as non-binary, who identify um, as, you know, just from a diverse background, and, like, all these different pieces came together really well for us. Mm. And that's kind of how our brand was shaped. Um, mm. And then over time, we we grew it to a point where we could get a fulfillment center down in the U.S., which we still have today. And we, we were very happy with how much uh, the company became more of, like, a void than just the business. Yeah. So once we started creating a Facebook group for all the women who were interested in our brand, we then had a group of, like, two, three hundred women who were just, you know, helping us design our next collection, helping us um, with reaching out to specific women in specific industries. Like, we had a whole group of teachers who wanted pockets for their classroom so that when they're teaching their students, they have a place to put their whiteboard markers and all that kind of stuff. Um, we had a group of dog lovers who loved walking their dogs but found it super inconvenient to have leggings that didn't have pockets. Mm-hmm. So they had nowhere to put their phone under their dog their leash and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> that kind of evolved over time, and we were able to meet our customer demands fully. And it was really only through COVID and kind of our, our halt and our supply chain that we started winding down operations and focusing more on our families and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, I mean, the amount of years that you were building it uh, as a business, you were also inadvertently perhaps building a blueprint because as I watched and I observed, with, you know, some of the background info that you shared that I, that I knew of, um, it was just so much of a breath of fresh air here because I was like, it just takes one for it to no longer be, you know, unprecedented or a rarity when the next one comes along. And I was just so happy to see that, you know, to your point, you were diverse as a brand with, you know, with the clothes themselves. You know, now it's become a lot more popular with, Companies like Athletics and things like that, where you can super focus yeah. on the pocket. But you guys came before that. Sorry, to have this. You guys kind of <laughs> were the first to market, which is, you know, not athletic clothes. It's all kinds of clothes, casual clothes. Um, and then to your point, Lisa, is the diversity of the clothes coupled with the diversity, which wasn't even like, Probably an effort that had to be made um, of having the University of Waterloo students modeling the clothes because the Waterloo region, the Waterloo uh, community, Kansas community, um, much like the southern, southeastern, and southwestern Ontario, is in and of itself extremely diverse, and that is kind of what made it so relieving for me to see that okay, she has she has staked her flag in the in the ground as far as Here's a modern day, current decade example of what it takes, you know, and and so folks can't kind of go back to that as close. And so I guess the piggyback from your story to our initial um, chat around the colors of what's it going to take for folks to really, you know, anchor on those elements that help companies that somehow you know, managed to survive and be rare and, and, and jump ahead is this idea of what comes naturally to us as, as folks 
um, millennials, the folks from Uwata Lu, um, and what just comes naturally to our region, our southern Ontario region for diversity. But unfortunately, it has been here for a really long time, but it wasn't translating for way too long of a time. Into business. Yeah. Into business. Into what we were experiencing. And so, so I would just, I'm trying to connect those dots. I would love if you would be able to elaborate on the connection of those dots from, from the elements of your story that succeeded to, to, you know, the pillars of, of what we've seen across the board is going to take to succeed. Um, and then I guess we can go from there. Things will, you know, naturally evolve. So. I think, okay, so I think 90% of it was just who Jessica and I were as people. Like, these were our pillars that we translated to our business. So for us, it was never about the bottom line. It was about mm-hmm. representing ourselves in, in a honest way. And for mm-hmm. us, that was being size-inclusive. It was being diverse-inclusive. It was yeah. being... Um, honest with, with our customers when we screwed something up. Like, if, if there was something that was wrong with the product, you would tell them mm-hmm. in the product. Um, that, you know, so for example, this is actually very embarrassing. Um, mm-hmm. one of our products were manufactured with the pockets, um, like, like fake pockets, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you'd wear these sweatpants and you'd <laughs> have pocket in it, which is the most ridiculous thing. Um, and then the unfortunate thing was we had ordered all these pockets, I mean, these non-pocketed sweatpants, and we didn't know what to do with them because it was exactly the opposite of our brand. Yeah. And it wasn't a forgivable mistake. So um, what we ended up doing was on April Fool's Day, we had a whole campaign about how clothes without pockets are the best thing ever as, like, a joke. And we put up a whole landing page and a video and pictures and a few scans, and we ended up buying them. <laughs> Sweatpants, anyways, wow. and like we, um, yeah, just because it was it was a funny like regenerating thing that we did, yeah, um, and it kind of helped illuminate why our actual brand was more valuable than having clothes that are just trendy. Um, so these types of things happen, and it's like connecting the dots in terms of the pillars of our company and like why we chose to do it that way. I think that. Jeff and I had both seen some diversity growing up. I mean, she grew up in um, the Vaughn Markham area where yeah. you know, predominantly, um, I think it's like predominantly uh, Jewish and Asian in that region. And then for me, I grew up all over the world. But I'm from India. I spent some time in California where I am today. Mm-hmm. And I also grew up in Ontario in Brampton. So I've also been exposed to a lot of different cultures. And for both of us, we we love to talk to people of different cultures. We love to get to know different people. We like to be sensitive to different practices and things like that. And that kind of translated into our business by making sure we had a multitude of different clothing that addressed those needs. So for women who wanted to dress more modest, we did have options for them. For women who wanted to dress more risque, we had options for them. For women who were dressing for work, like we, we try to make sure that every segment of our, our customer base was covered by our collection. Mm-hmm. And... It was very important to us that our clothes not just, like, look good and have pockets, but also fit nice and made you feel good so that you aren't always, like, hugging it one side of your dress or the other. So those are the little pieces of a brand that you remember. Is like, oh, when I ordered from this brand, you know, it comes in this beautiful packaging, it comes with a thank you note, and when I put it on, I just feel amazing from the deco. That's, like, the type of experience you were trying to create. 
And I think at the time, like, you have, like, people have to understand that the, the water in Toronto Corridor was really known for tech companies, not yeah. necessarily for, like, fashion or e-commerce companies. Right. Um, and, and that's fine. I think that that identity is true to what it is even today. But it doesn't allow for people to market the diversity of the organization mm-hmm. to the truest form. So for us, because mm-hmm. we had a social platform, because we had eyes on our brand, it was very easy for us to be able to be known for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when when you're a software company, you need to be known for you know, closing deals or mm-hmm. um, maybe your your company culture. So let's say Shopify, for example, they're yeah. I think Canada's largest company or employer of, you know, software professionals. And I I don't know too much about their company culture. All I know is that everyone is given a lot of ownership over their projects and things like that. So for me as a Canadian, it would be good for me to know if Shopify is doing things differently, if they're being more diverse and things like that. So I think over time what they ended up doing was presenting at large conferences like Elevate and um, the Collision so that they were staying relevant in all of the different topics, not just in e-commerce. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think people started to, obviously, to your point of having eyeballs on your brand, take note of uh, what's working well with your Shopify sites and, and what can we then leverage and scale. Um, and that really is, obviously, the name of the game, not only, you know, for the startup world in general, but particularly right now they're, um, time and nimbleness and, and agility is really at the essence uh, for survival mm-hmm. and, and recovering from really what's going to be at least an entire calendar year of, of, of recalibration. So, I mean, that is such an informative story uh, as far as, well, a couple were really interesting. So, you were referring to making sure that women, that users, buyers, consumers, felt comfortable, felt a sense of utility and practicality and reflectivity um, once they ordered your product. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was only a couple years later or a couple years ago that a brand by the name of Sexy Beauty, in its own right, did that same thing and almost set a new standard, obviously with a much larger microscope in the world on it and, and platform of visibility. But you guys did the, you guys did the same thing that Sensi Beauty came in and aimed to accomplish for the beauty industry as far as those those pillars that you mentioned. And so there's just there's such a clear continuity, trend and continuity in terms of the themes that make brands win, that make uh, fashion or or woman um, directed products and services win, and my hope, last question to you, is that it would, it would seem that now finally, you know, the, the moment of reckoning is, is, is beyond just like a human experience, but it's like secure and sublevel, right? You know, the world are, are you know, people daughter of the planet Earth, and and e-commerce, the customer base is kind of right? Even if you add up all the first world countries. So my hope and my question to you is that you do think that now finally the two are becoming um, unstoppable in a way that folks are no longer going to resist 
for complete information from what he said at the top, with the highest levels of this other business, all the way through to what consumers are experience at, you know, at the end point of, of a brand. No longer will there be this resistance. Would you say that that's um, likely going to be the case coming out of, of, of this crazy pandemic we're in, hopefully? Yeah, I think that companies aren't going to resist the change as much. Um, but there, there is a couple of different points that we're making assumptions of that I'd like to make. Yeah. So even, even though Jessica and I made a conscious effort to make our pillars of our organization reflect our true personalities, we didn't know that that would work. At the time that we were launching our business, we didn't know that we would have all of them. Like, it was so unheard of to have a business that had the sizes from all the CXL and also diverse models and also e-commerce and location in Canada. So it, it was like a huge gamble on our part to think that something that hadn't been done before mm-hmm. would work. And we had all sorts of conflicting advice. Like especially, I, I'm very sympathetic to those who are trying to start businesses right now from like from scratch right. because. You're getting all sorts of conflicting advice, and also the market that you're entering is going to be new now. Like the entire market is going to be refreshed after we all come back to work, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even about resisting to change. It's about your risk is so much higher now every time you change something yeah. because you're just operating off of less and less information. Mm-hmm. So for us, um, it wasn't initially clear that our plus size section of our brand would do well. Um, and and to this day, like, it, it always underperformed compared to our small, medium, and large sizes. Even though folks said they wanted it fully inclusive, that portion of our brand was always never profitable. It was always just breaking even. Okay. Um, and then if you look at, like, so this is like a discrepancy, right? So we changed and our ideology didn't match consumer behavior. So these types of things always happen. Even in the post-COVID world, you see mm-hmm. brands that are making tough decisions like, okay, we're going to work from home. All of our um, employees are going to work from home. We're going to get let go of our office. Okay. Um, we're going to do all these different things. But you don't actually know 100% that that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like maybe people are really wanting a human connection and the right thing to do is to come into work once a week and, like, stagger it so that only five employees are in the office at any given time, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's no right answer to these things. And as I'm glad companies aren't resistant to, resistant to change because they have to at this point, it's more around how are you able to make decisions with the limited information that you have. I mean, in the States, we're, we're going into an election season right now. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> basically, brands are not brands only, like small business owners are wondering how that's going to affect their already low foot traffic. Right. So these are all huge questions, and I think that consumers do provide intel to their buying behavior, but when you're so small, you don't have as many orders or as many transactions to be able to make um, decisions based on user generating data or have enough of a sample size to make a confident decision. So in those times, like, you really do have to just go with your gut feeling and do what's right. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. But once you've done something and it's part of your brand, 
you can't go back on it. Like once we added the plus size section of our brand, we couldn't then go back to being just small, medium, and large. It was already part of my identity. And even though it, even though it wasn't necessarily profitable, some of our um, biggest champions came from that segment. So it was never like a total loss. There was always some part of it that was um, helpful to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know if I answered your question better. <laughs> no, there's no right or wrong answer. You you blew it out the water because you just expanded on it in a beautiful way. <laughs> uh, and I took some notes here, and so what I'm hearing is kind of to your point, Nisha, is that if folks are aware of the elements that are going to be required for the marketing or learning we've gotten out of this season for success in the future, but as you've mentioned, a lot of companies, because of their size, because of their risk aversion, right? To your point, like they, they just think, okay, where is this shape? things up in this area, do I not just want to continue doing what works? It almost sounds to me, so first of all, you hit the nail on the head as far as what's almost the challenge in taking the learning and taking the epiphanies of what it takes to be a rare brand that will survive and stand the test of time, the test of, you know, Armageddon, the test of any pandemic or world shutdown, right? So we've established mm-hmm. those, and what you've hit the nail on the head is that the challenge now is not knowing what those are, knowing that tech first, digital first, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Those folks are just there for, you know, for show, for, for, for prosperity, but they're there feeling actual voice and sense that their stay at the table is incorporated and, and valued. And the really important piece that I feel you have on here that is so key, key, key to address is how do we now mitigate, uh, tackle, and solve for folks being like, okay, those boxes were in there, but how, like, you know, we, we only have so much room for error. And how do we invest serving any, you know, any kind of throughout the world, 
But I feel like what would really skill to help people not be bonded by what they know needs to happen, but they have the risk aversion to, to incorporating is almost, you know, well beyond an HR, just, you know, an HR diversity officer. <laughs> right. An operational, an operational, very business strategic function within each company that is not just, you know, the HR person's purview to literally create or recreate structures and systems that, that make it less risk, uh, risk averse, averse or, or risk, you know, scary. And, and so, so that's what I'm hearing. It's kind of like the solve of the solution to, to what really is, is kind of like we just, we can't go back from here. We can't go backwards and if in any way you and I are chatting and, and mulling things through can, can spark, you know, kind of like two pots to first use it. I'm not going to change the world, but I guarantee you I will spark the mind that will change the world. It's kind of a little bit of what I at least hope to do here, what I at least would, would hope that our conversation can do is, is helping people to see, you know, that it's kind of go beyond just, you know, an HR department or, or a nice little lunch and learn strategy structural and operational and functional and how you build your services, how you build your product, how you build your, your customer relations. Um, what are your thoughts to that? How would you expand on that, Lisa? What, what do you think it's going to take to kind of bridge back out to the risk aversion? And people know you look better change, but how do we do this? <laughs> I think it's to take things one step at a time. But if you're trying to change your company culture along with the product and also meet your customer demands and also make – so usually people have different types of customers, right? They have their, like, legacy customers who they started out with, mm-hmm. and they need to make them happy because that's where their revenue comes from. Right. But then they're also trying to evolve into a bigger brand and, like, mm-hmm. have different types of clientele. So, like, when you have an, an enormous business operation and you're trying to attack all these different pieces of the puzzle – like, the first thing to do is just to talk to people, um, in my opinion. So, if you're the leader of a company or a, even a department, you, you just need to have real conversations one-on-one with the people that you oversee or whoever they oversee and understand what, first of all, your employees think is the biggest thing that needs to happen, mm-hmm. the area of importance. And keep that in the back burner. And then you do a little focus group with your clients who are open to speaking with you about these types of things and understand what they think is the biggest importance. So if they're like, oh, no, like you, the service that you provide me, um, all I care about is that it doesn't um, malfunction. Mm-hmm. So then you take that to your employees and you say, okay, we're going to pivot some of these roles and make sure that the team in charge of this System operations is like solid, mm-hmm. and there's always someone um, available for support 24 seven. But then, if your team is saying, "Okay, we're happy to do that," but the problem is we don't work well together as a team. We really need to understand our company vision, and it's just not clear at the at the bottom level. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's up to the leadership to kind of, you know, take that into consideration, um, help help the employees feel more comfortable in their role, help them see the longevity of the business. And, and be honest with them if the runway is three months, right? If you're a startup and you don't have runway, like, help employees understand that if they don't help, 
increase the revenue of the business and help the founders raise, they won't be able to continue working there. Mm-hmm. And it's not a matter of scaring people as much as it is being using your leadership to help people feel like you're always going to be honest with them. Not going to be slapped with like uh, a news brief two weeks before the end of the company, being like, "Oh, we think you for working here." Mm-hmm. So it's just transparency and being um, considerate. I think goes really long way. Yeah, and coming into it, I think one of the key turning points, along with everything you just mentioned, is talking to people, clients, employees, transparency, is all of that not being a box-ticking exercise, which unfortunately has largely been, and people aren't dumb, you've hired intelligent university college, however educated people to work in your company, people aren't unintelligent when it comes to discerning when those processes, when they do happen, be it after, you know, the summer of the ground in 2016 when there was just so many atrocities happening that were reverberating through Canada, at least through the tech companies I was working at the time, is then the exercise coming out of the town hall coming out of being very much around, well, we're going to take this box because we didn't look like we didn't do anything. And shifting away from that, right? Because that is so sacred. And what makes it frustrating is it is so transparent when that is kind of like the, the, the nature of where it's coming from. But the way things have stood up until now is that folks do not know how to address it or vocalize it, especially if they are individual contributors in the company, or even if they're a mid-level manager who, who you know, has three kids and a mortgage, and they're a person of color, and they see it, and they don't know how to say, hey, we just did a nice box kicking exercise. And so, for whatever it's worth in terms of saying it out loud, it's like, hey, folks like Lisa, folks like myself, folks like every, you know, um, woman or diverse Canadian or allies in the Southern Ontario Tech Corridor can very much be one of the box ticking exercise and, and however um, that can evolve to being genuine and from the heart and ongoing and lasting and recurrent and not just a nice to have or, you know, prosperity or, 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 or the word that is kind of coming out a lot recently is a lot of performative allyship, a lot of performative inclusivity, and that performative identity. And that is not going to cut it because who you're trying to convince and who you're trying to influence and impact is not, is, is no one other than those most directly in, impacted by the issues that you're trying to address by taking about. And those individuals need to feel like you care at your core, like it's something that you feel with as much as it as it does them. And so there are a variety of ways to evolve that, but I feel that one, for my experience, it starts from how you build your business from the ground up at the starting stages where it is it's unseverable from you know, having state capital, having your, you know, core executive, your employees, having your your business plan, how are we going to make this a sustainable business from a from an inclusivity standpoint so that none of these other pillars that we're setting up are going to fall apart eventually? 
or not be as strong as they could be. I think that that's one change. And then the other is for the companies that are already well on their way is perhaps making it less scary for folks to vocalize and, hey, it feels very performative or or just finding ways to implement those structures within your own self-assessment process where it's like, hey, you know, this is what we were told by head office way out in wherever in Europe or California to do, but we feel that this felt very much of a box to exercise. There are a variety of ways to address this, but it's getting to the root and the core of all the ways in which diversity inclusion has not worked, has backfired, and has exacerbated um, the matter. And it's just, again, it's going to exacerbate your bottom line in the long term. But I think the key is also not to go about um, addressing it, saying, hey, and plus, having diverse companies is better for the bottom line because you're not trying to make a case for diversity. It should just be because it's the right thing to do, period. <laughs> because right. it's reflective of the way the majority of the world looks and, and who the majority of the world is, period. Not a, hey, we need to, like, quantify the value of this type of thing. So what I feel would also help that seems to be a catchphrase is diversity has proven statistically to be really positive and enhancing of the bottom line. Like, that needs to go away. It just needs to be right. diversity is not a rarity. Belonging is not a rarity. Inclusion is not a rarity. And I feel that, you know, in all the ways that I want rarity brands to help brands become a rarity, um, that that will, that I'll be able to move on to something else that's a rarity eventually. So I knew that's, you know, lasting a bit poetic, but I feel so she could break it down <laughs> in ways that you and I have seen, you know, in our, in our, in our journey over the past decade, um, is just not in a cut of Um, so thoughts on that, and then I just have one sort of concluding quick question for you. Um, sure. and yeah. But any thoughts on what I just shared in terms of, like, Few ideas of what it's going to take to like turn that around. Um, I I think what you said about performative diversity was a phrase I wish I knew six weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just didn't know what to call it. Um, I had never seen this type of blatant ah, God, which I just so much has happened. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I remember I needed that word back then to explain how bizarre. The community was reacting to what was going on. It was like, it was confused. Um, the, the thing that I think, um, would help this is supporting initiatives like the Black North Initiative headed up by West Hall. Yeah. Um, essentially an initiative that is forcing companies that make a certain amount, that have a certain amount of impact in Canada to have diverse representation in their leadership and all levels of the company. Yeah. And as companies are signing on to the initiative, like, it's forcing leaders to think about this at the forefront of their board meetings. It's forcing leaders to think about this in their hiring practices. Because every time you say there's not enough black founders in the hiring pool, that just means you've exhausted this supply chain of talent. You need to now invent a new supply chain of talent. When you're starting a new business, you're starting about a new pipeline for generating leads to your service. If you only want to generate leads from 
oh, I don't know, TikTok users. Mm-hmm. You would strictly advertise to TikTok users. Mm-hmm. This is precisely the abstract that I'm trying to draw. If, if you're trying to hire diverse talent, if you're trying to make your organization attractive to people who are from diverse backgrounds, you need to change a little bit about how you hire people. You need to change a little bit about how you communicate your brand. If you don't do that, then people aren't going to feel comfortable applying to your company, much less working there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are these are things that when you say performative diversity, I think that simply saying, you know, we stand with X community mm-hmm. is not enough. Yes. We, we stand with X community because social injustice has happened, yes. That's not enough. Well, you need to actually go do something else. <laughs> and then we side, and I think, I think part of the, the somewhat difficult process that allies and that folks who, who never have to grapple with this, um, professionally or personally is be ready. And I think this is part of the job is equipping those folks who are in positions of power is be ready for the owl. Be, be fully ready because that's what's experienced by women, by diverse people, by diverse women in every room and boardroom we step into, oftentimes, occasionally, semi-occasionally. But when you're in these positions of power and you sign on to a pledge or initiative and have it not just be, you know, we stand with you and you're trying to make it real, part of making it real is, I think, two things, Rita, because what I'm hearing in our conversation, what we're sort of surfacing and just across the board um, out there in the business world, is that it's like an agenda item, kind of like an add-on that we already have enough on our plate. Mm-hmm. And so I think the key is to stop looking at it like a nice little HR initiative, a nice little add-on if we have time, if we have bandwidth, if we have resources. And when we say this, we know for well that we don't because we're just trying to get this ship itself to succeed, is instead of it taking it as an accessory item, incorporate it into everything you do. When you're having your finance meetings, have that be a line item at the top of you, and certainly not at the end, because in so doing, you're having it be an accessory in the desert. Have it be in the first three, you know, to do tasks in your finance meeting, in your strategy meeting, in your in your marketing meeting, in your your sales meeting and your brand team meeting, I'm just thinking of all the different in your operations meeting, have it be an infused and embedded element that is unseparable from any other function of the business. Because I think the key to not approaching this as a nice to have or a, oh, we gotta do this because we signed up for it, you gotta look good, you gotta also compete with yeah. such and such competitor band that design look they're gonna make this look bad if you don't find the place too. Incorporate into every single uh executive pillar of your company is number one and number two is psychologically prepare yourself. If it means going to Netflix and watching every strong black lead movie, I don't know what it is that you right. have to do. On there right. now on there now um you know list there's not the strong black leads there's there's, there's Latino red movies, there's, there's movies from Saudi Arabia, whatever the case may be, go and like psychologically prepare yourself from an allyship standpoint to be fully, fully prepared and unflinched by the eye roll, by the sigh, by the snarky side comments of, you guys do this again, or I'll look like 
look at look at you know the performative ally or the, the you know so so you come in with just as much strength and resolve and resilience that we as women we as people of color we as women of color have had to just put on as a suit of armor to operate in this world like every day without questions it's not optional so I think then just being ready for that discomfort and leaning into the discomfort and not going into it thinking that it's not going to be there. And that doesn't mean being paranoid or having a chip on your shoulder. It means you have to get it in your blood if you're going to infuse it into the DNA of the business for the long term. And, yeah, I think that those two things, well, at least from, you know, my years of experience, my years of consulting, my years of corporate experience and so forth, Make the biggest difference from how it has not worked well, how it has not been sustainable, both strategically from the, the executive level and then culturally from the, you know, middle level individual contributor management level of folks just not buying into it and going their eyes and especially folks of color feeling like I can't be seen as backing the bus because that's going to harm my, you know, social standing or professional standing in the organization, like, you just have to be super mindful and, and sweat a little bit. Sweat a little bit and as much as most have been for the past century, uh, multiple generations of careers, um, in, in thinking about the experience of, of non-diverse people or people who do not identify as diverse, um, and then the diverse folks who are looked at as kind of like, the one representative for their entire cohort <laughs> and so forth. And so, you know, I'm so glad we said that you and I were able to have this and chat and talk through these things um, with the rush perspective. <laughs> one thing I'd like to add on that on that point that you mentioned about not having one representative sponsored <laughs> whole company on these issues is is not offloading the discomfort to junior level employees, which is what I've been seeing. Yeah. Um, even in startups. So if if people are telling you to if your board is telling you you need to hire more diverse talent or your clientele needs to be more diverse or your marketing needs to be more diverse and then you see that pressure just being pushed on to the lower ranks of your organization and all of that I guess the, the that burden is only falling on those shoulders is, is is not enough. Like I, I don't, I don't think that that's fair. So I find that in certain organizations, like you said, where they have one diverse founder, not founder, just employee, mm-hmm. um, that person is suddenly the forefront of all discussions regarding diversity, and that's yeah. a huge burden to put on one person who didn't sign up for that role. And yeah. I, I just don't think that's fair. Just by saying, oh, you look a certain way, therefore you need to help build these policies for our organization is a very kind of tone deaf approach. Yeah. Changing your organization. And pressuring pressuring your employees to drum up a social following from the black community, for example, out of thin air is not going to happen. So so these are things that people I hope in leadership positions are aware of that just by telling your junior level employees to go and carry out these diverse practices doesn't it like result in the results that you're actually looking for. It needs to be thought of a little bit more carefully than that. Yeah, I mean what you just said from not 
overburdening the one individual or junior level individuals. And this is what I've seen. This is what I wouldn't say it was done in any malicious way. It was just kind of like a default. Not that was how businesses run, right? Exactly. When you get a uh, when you get a specific request for a specific market change, people at the bottom are the ones who are like changing all the business practices in order to meet that demand. Which I completely understand, but this is this goes beyond that. It's a systemic problem, right? By changing just how one layer of your company operates doesn't actually fix that system. I'm so redundant. And it also goes back when it comes to delegating to junior level folks or delegating to the one and only, whatever demographic um, profile that you have in your team. Is what are you doing as a leader? What are you doing as a leadership team? Middle level, highest level, you name it. To consider the experience of that individual when they then go back to their desk or go back to their, their often open concept. Just other, their, their cohort of peers from a cultural standpoint that makes them feel safe, that makes them feel like they're not going to be um, ostracized or side-eyed or whatever the case may be, is that before you delegate to individuals the mandates that you've been delegated to <laughs> diversity or inclusion belonging standpoint, how are you making the the tone and the culture across the board, not just in a one town hall meeting, not just in a one email that gets buried and a million others. How are you consistently, uh, clearly, and unflinchingly, as in it's not something you're kind of trying to like sidestep, making it culturally comfortable and, and, and supportive for that individual, for those individuals who are either being delegated to or whose place is being addressed to not then feel, right, ramifications when it comes to, when you even look at the NFL, like, oh, are you going to take a knee now? And, like, a little, like, sidestep snarky comments that that one, like, it's empowering and it's, it's, it's adding fuel to and listen, everything I'm saying, I know it's a lot of work for executives to wrap their head around and be like, how am I going to even talk to this? That is why you're an executive. Not doing this is not optional as an executive. And it's, like you said, three steps, baby steps, and one step at a time. But it very much is about setting a cultural tone consistently, clearly, and unwaveringly. And the other piece that literally cannot, in Canada, throughout North America, and I would extend to Europe, right? You cannot assume that every diverse group Okay, we were talking women. Women, there are a lot of subgroups within the female community, um, be it based on um, orientation, be it based on socioeconomic class, be it based on whatever, right, religion. There are a lot of subgroups within the quote-unquote diverse or ethnic folks. So what I'm trying to do very specifically to be perfectly one in, in the the in light of what has come to the forefront in the past four months since George Floyd died at the beginning of May, is particularly in tax and across the corporate world. Your diverse employees of black descent do not experience racism, do not experience hurdles in the same way that other diverse groups who make up the majority of diversity groups experience hurdles around racism, hurdles around, you know, acceptance and so forth. 
In other words, what I'm trying to say is you need to be very niche with your cultural tone setting the process as a mid-level manager and knowing that it is not a one-size-fits-all. By definition, when, at least in the Canadian context, you, you speak about underrepresented minorities, BIPOC, Black Indigenous, and people of color, specifically the first two letters of that acronym, um, it is with reference to underrepresented minorities. What does that mean? It means there is there is already a precedent of of enough success, enough momentum, enough traction, enough of a leg to stand on that the majority of of diverse folks in this country can kind of fall back on to be okay. Right? When it comes to indigenous folks in this country or this continent, when it comes to black folks in this country and this continent, um, we don't have a community back in India or back in the Middle East or back in Asia to kind of fall back on yeah. and be okay. We don't have, like, that multi-generational wealth or that multi-generational uh, culture and, and structure of success, education, like we do. Do not get, do not get us wrong. You've had a whole history of historical black colleges and universities instilling success, instilling education, instilling excellence. That is an untold story in North America. However, it is not equivalent. It is not the same as kind of the leg that, you know, East Asian, Asian, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, North African, diverse demographics can kind of lean back on for their support, for their for their resources, monetary and otherwise, when it comes to um, Rolodex, when it comes to people that they, they can call up to help put in a word for them or help connect them with their next opportunity, whatever, that does not exist for Indigenous folks in this country and this continent, for Black folks in this country of Canada and this continent. And you have to be mindful of that when you are instituting your your initiatives consistently across every pillar, across every executive um, meeting, not at the bottom of the meeting, like an accessory or addendum, but at the top of the meeting and throughout the way that it speaks and runs through the blood. What that looks like in detail, that will be for you to go and hire the appropriate, you know, business consultant or diversity strategist um, who is not just an HR specialist, but who is a business operations and strategy specialists, I being one of them, and there are many others, that is up to you and go do that by work. But just knowing at least from the from the get-go that it can't be one size fits all for all quote unquote diverse people. And it cannot be um yeah, like I said, it's just <laughs> I'll add to that that piece that I mentioned earlier beyond it not being able to be performative. Um, it can't just be for optics, so that's another word to add to your back pocket. Um, right, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've already had it, Lisa. And I just thought that that was just so, so key. Obviously, as somebody who's a black descent, I'm a fresh Canadian and black descent. I, just, I identify as black Canadian. Uh, I also identify as multiracial Canadian because it's, it's my lived experience, you know, and we can get into many layers even deeper of how not all black experiences are identical within the black community. I have fairer brown skin, and so my experience has been slightly different than my brothers and sisters um, from only one side of what makes up who I am. And that is also eventually the job of leadership to understand all the nuances of experiences when it comes to shade and tone and color and, and, and 
multi-ethnicity within the black community because we're not a monolith. You got to be aware. You can't not. You want to survive and spread in the future. So I just thought that those things were important to touch on. But um, yeah, I, I really and I don't think I could have said it as eloquently as you because it's your lived experience. Um, it, it's not up to the black community or the indigenous community or other people who of color to police organizations then that they're a part of. Like, once the strategy is in place, if the organization wavers, it's, then the onus is not on the few folks that belong to those communities to then lead the organization in the right direction. Yeah. So, it's it's really it has to come from you know hiring the right people, um, like talking to consultants, talking to professionals in this field, and making decisions that have systems in place where if something happens, things can be reported, things can be anonymized. In the same way that this is a terrible example, in the same way that harassment is taken care of in yeah. those organizations, there should be similar systems and protocols to protect employees in this context as well. 100%, and not always in a, in, a, in a negative, you know, incident-based way, but in a general ongoing feedback way. Where it's like, hey, we just did a thing. We just launched a product. We just launched a campaign. We just want to make available a, a system, a tool, a feedback mechanism that allows for feedback, right? It's not always, like, whistleblowing. It's, hey, you guys were a little bit tone deaf when it comes to this thing that we just did. Here's a resource that I can go in and submit that without, <laughs> without then the entire team of seven people getting back the, the quote unquote anonymous feedback and being able to very evidently and obviously see who said what based on the nature of the feedback and the nature of the majority of the folks in the group and the minority of the one folk in the group and things like that, right? Where it's just like, you got to listen, tech is sophisticated enough to make not just um, incident-based reporting, which is something, again, I, I hate to say it because I wish we were past this and I don't want the connotation attached to folks of color women to be like snitches, right? Or however you might call it in school schoolyard terms. But in addition to when things don't go well, is having there be a, a pipeline and mechanism for women things could have gone better, but we just want to, like, make our company better and leverage. Let's talk a little positively here, uh, more positively. The beauty, the, the depth, the richness of our cultural perspective of our linguistic and ethic um, heritage. We want to inject all that gold, that hashtag, brown girl magic, black girl magic, whatever you want to call it, into right. helping this company, like, kick ass out there in, in their industry. And so, so I think it's, it's, it's creating a funnel to be able to, like, pass that out of, of your employees, of your middle-level management. And know that that's key. But that's also part of why hiring people of color and retaining and sustaining them is also just smart. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and, sure. and, that, and that I think is to... to title loop on that last point is that and connecting to what I said before is that not every diverse person's experience in the company is equal and it's not a one page brush. When you hire black talent, please know, please be aware, please institute mechanisms that doesn't leave that person hanging for the first three, four, six months in role. 
where they don't have a mentor. And when I say specifically black talent and saying that by and large they are going to be and I was asked for feedback on this kind of like help us be a better company just in general delegated as a you know, um individual contributor before of like what is the black experience doing? I'm like basically bullet points is never being given the benefit of the doubt oftentimes. It's quick escalation um from tears, it's quick assumption as to you having been in the wrong. It's 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 being underestimated and undermined very quickly. All of these little nuances that when added up in perpetuity, so that is what the black experience looks like versus no one is doubting the, you know, Asian Canadian gentleman in XYZ area or the Indo Canadian gentleman or, or female in XYZ area or department on an ongoing basis. These, these nuances is what it looks like to be black, not being given the benefit of the doubt, all the different things I just mentioned. And so knowing that when you have higher folks out of school, um, into a mid-level management position, into an individual contributor position, into an executive position, you are dropping the ball if you are not pairing that individual either with a known, consistent, thoroughly aware ally, which could be of any shade or tone or gender, okay? Or if you're not pairing that individual black descent with another individual black descent. And I hate to say the example of of Michelle Obama having initially been the mentor in his first in his first law job of a young man by the name of Barack Obama back in the late eighties, right. <laughs> you know. But somebody did something right by pairing them together. Clearly, thirty plus years later, that is at a at a across the board level. What from day one he was he said a little late on the first day. What is the case be? It needs to be from day one that that you hired is paired with somebody who can help them navigate the nuances of what it looks like to be bought in a company where executives can't get into the minutia of all of the hurdles and roadblocks that somebody who can take them under their wing can get can help them navigate to help them succeed so that when performance reviews come along, projects come along, you're not affecting this person. You're not um you're not coaching or, or managing this person in a status quo manner. You're coaching and managing them with, with unfortunately, the cultural understanding, knowledge, and just reality of here's the systemic truth of what society and, and the corporate culture looks like that is already set up in place that you can't dismantle in a day. And how are we mitigating that from day one when Barack Obama walks into um, the Sydney Austin law firm and when Alisa Babino walks into, you know, her first job during a school and, and every other young black professional and every other professional who transfers from one company to another, that's one caveat I, I feel is unspoken and we can have as many black work initiatives on us as we want and try and get as many numbers and pledges for numbers on executive boards. But if we're not getting this data, if we're not getting these nuances of what it's actually like structurally for a new hire and what's not just from a support perspective, ongoing, not just a once-a-month meeting, but an ongoing check-in to help this person succeed with the cultural nuances. That's a fail from the get-go on the company's part, and it's a fail from the get-go on the company's part, too, when it comes to that person eventually being like, you know what, this is not a place for me. This is not a place where I can grow and thrive and succeed in the long term, and knowing that, unfortunately, in the tech market and the corporate market as it is, 
when I say market, I say community, society, nucleus, there unfortunately is a stigma to where when you're coming from a large brand, it's kind of like, oh, what's wrong with you? Because if you're black and you're coming from a large brand, you're presumed to have been the problem if you're trying to move on and strategically navigate through your career as any individual would when a place is just not cutting it for you in your long-term career goals. And just understanding beyond just within the executives in that company, but across the board with all the executives that back up initiatives like, you know, Black Door Initiative and so forth, that the truth and the reality for employees who have to move from one company after a year or two or three years to another is when you're interviewing a Black individual or an Indigenous individual or particularly of those two backgrounds, not having your, your management hiring committees be cognizant and acutely aware of the realities that, that those folks go through, the reality and the necessity to not apply the default, there must be something wrong with you if you're not still at RIM or BlackBerry or whatever large glossy brand. Right. And instead of looking at actually the bigger elephants in the room are the majority of the companies out there who are just now in this pandemic realizing, oh, maybe we should change our systemic structures and knowing that systemically these individuals are coming to interview with you at your small firms, your mid-level firms. They're coming from a, a bigger systemic, you know, menace that has historically disenfranchised and, and, and disadvantaged them and not approaching them with that suspicion and doubting what's wrong with you. And, and unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of back channel toxic, I mean, listen, I'm speaking on behalf of experience that I've seen within black community peers and so forth, but a lot of back channel, quote unquote, um, you know, fact, so-called fact-checking and back-channel, you know, cover-up story, um, reference-gathering through, again, unfortunately, even when you leave the company, the systemic, the systemically racist structures that exist out there, particularly with respect to Black and Indigenous folks, it's just, that needs to go away outside of just any one individual company, and it needs to not just go away, that needs to be spelled out and made aware of. Um, yeah, because these are, these are just like, he, I, I feel levers and pillars. When somebody comes in and then when somebody needs to move the heck on because that company is way behind the eight ball in the time, I just don't need to be so out because nowhere, nowhere and so many podcasts that I've listened to across Ontario, across even Montreal that are starting to bubble up addressing the black community, addressing diversity inclusion, is this already specificity? being addressed when someone comes in and when someone, after a few years, has had enough and has left, a place that is still very much steeped in the in the the, the, the toxicity or the, <laughs> you know, of, of unfortunately what we're trying not to dismantle. So I just want to spell out those things to that the whole point and purpose of being millennials trying to create a better world for our children to grow up in. <laughs> And, yeah, and I, I, know, I know that you say you get it, and I just feel like that is a conversation and, and that needs to be broken down in a strategic way um, because it's not enough to just get a face on your, on your, you know, your board, your executive board. It's just it's not enough. So I kind of am being the voice in this time, in this moment, in this podcast for folks that are at the mid to mid to senior level, the individual contributor level, because if you don't get these this intel, if you don't get this feedback, you don't get this insight into what needs to change, 
You can have as many faces of different kinds sitting on executive boards all day long. That is not going to move or shift the needle for folks who are in the trenches. So, with that being said, <laughs> um, just thank you for, I mean, hearing that case, Lisa. I know that you get it. Any final thoughts? I do want to be respectful of your time, but just very thankful for the time that you that you spent here. Um, I am so excited for everything that you're doing with Rarity Brands and with your consulting because we need more Alicia's in the world for sure. <laughs> you're too kind. Gosh, well, listen, let's just like keep in touch. It's an ongoing journey well beyond, you know, any company or client just kind of that either one of us are working in. And I just, similarly, as you mentioned, you need more visas in the world, kind of like your 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 handle that you have, Life Takes Visa, Life World Canada definitely takes Visa. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, definitely keep in touch. And thank you so much for taking this super valuable, so precious time. Um, and thank you to all the listeners who've been listening, um, listening with empathy, listening with compassion, listening with understanding, and listening with and beyond just the quote-unquote hashtag word listening that we've seen in posts, right, from companies in the past few months, listening with with a fire in your belly that is taking notes and instituting change operationally, strategically in every part of your company beyond the one HR assistance or individual please and thank you. <laughs> so... Yeah, things like that. Thank you so much, Lisa. You take care out in California. Enjoy the nevertheless sunshine, I would imagine. Yes, it's warm. Thank you. Yeah. It is raining there in Ontario. <laughs> I won't say what part of the city, but in the central GTA, it is raining. But, you know, we're not snowing yet, but it's like always a good thing to be thankful for. So good time to and you know, I mean, can't wait till you're back in Canada, whatever that is, whenever the world uh, recalibrates, hopefully soon. <laughs> All right, thanks, Alicia. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right, thanks. Bye.